Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox, and today, Thomas Hughes at Queen's University looks at the Ukraine-Russia conflict and how a war can be avoided. Jason also from Leger has new poll results on our diminishing desire to watch the Beijing Olympics. Cynthia Leach is part of a team at RBC who wrote a report on how millions of us are about to be directly impacted by climate change policies in Canadian workplaces. And Aaron Woodrick of the Macdonald-Laurier Institute has a long look at the Emergencies Act. So let's get started. The headline on this article we saw at the conversation a few days ago said it all. The Ukraine-Russia standoff is a troubling watershed moment for NATO. The author of this piece joins us this morning from Queen's University in Ontario, where he is a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for International and Defense Policy. A pleasure to welcome Thomas Hughes to the program. Mr. Hughes, Thomas, good morning and welcome. Thank you very much indeed. Good morning, Sterling. It's great to be here. It's good to have you with us. Let me just read one sentence from the article, and and we'll get into it here. If Russia conducts any activity that harms Ukraine or the Ukrainian government, it represents a very public failure of key NATO members to deter such action. So as we look at a very tense situation this weekend, Thomas, uh, what do you think the likelihood of Russia conducting activity that will harm Ukraine or their government this weekend? If I had the absolute accurate answer to that, I think I'd be earning a lot of money somewhere. Um, Probably not speaking here. Uh, However, if I was a betting man, unfortunately, I would say that the developments we've seen in the last 48 hours um, suggest that we are going to see some of that action uh, against Ukraine. I still maintain that I think it's unlikely we see a full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine. I I don't envisage a scenario with tanks rolling down the streets of Kiev, but I think the the Donbass region is looking increasingly uh, problematic, and I would be rather surprised if we didn't see some Russian intervention there uh, in the next few days. And 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 so now, if that that small, low level, relatively speaking, mm. activity, Thomas, would be not enough to trigger a NATO response, mm. but that any activity, going back to your line, yep. any activity represents a very public failure on the part yep. of NATO to deter such action. So, how could NATO, for example, over the weekend, Kamala Harris, the United mm. States Vice President, is now on the scene. Uh, more leaders yep. are focusing their attention and energy. So. What can be done to reduce the, you're right, we're starting to see some shelling in some areas of Ukraine. Uh, so it's begun. So how do we how yes. do we diffuse that? So I think that there needs to be that off-ramp, to use the, the, the language of the negotiation. There needs to be a, a way of um, presenting to Russia an opportunity to um, achieve some of their goals without pulling back um, out completely out of out of uh, Ukraine uh, and away from the, those borders. I think the reality at the moment is that what we would probably be looking at is for Russia to um, disavow uh, action, uh, aggressive action against Ukrainians um, within the Donbas region, um, and suggest that they uh, don't support. Uh, military activity there. Uh, what we have already seen is is Russia very clearly saying we do not inv- intend to invade Ukraine. We are not going to inv- invade Ukraine. This is Western hyperbole. Right. Uh, and 
So I think we can potentially go a step beyond that and say, okay, if that's the case, we need Russia to deliberately calm tensions uh, and call for the Russian separatists in those regions uh, to to move aside from violence. The question then, of course, I think, as you you really mentioned earlier, is that this isn't a problem that's going away anytime soon. Uh, Russia's intent regarding Ukraine is going to continue. And that poses this huge problem for NATO. Um, Ukraine isn't a NATO member, so NATO doesn't have to go and defend it. But as I said in that piece, NATO has been very vociferous um, that, that Russia should not act against Ukraine. And it makes NATO, I think, uh, raises questions uh, within NATO about um, whether NATO is willing and able to continue to oppose Russia in the way that it has done over the past few years. Well, and there's therein lies the problem, I think, Thomas, and you, yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head because the most powerful country in Europe is mm. Germany. And Germany is pretty darn dependent on Russia as a source for natural gas and and, uh, petro products. So that dependency weakens the strongest country in Europe's position to do anything Mm. strong against Russia. Yes, uh, I I think we have to be a little bit careful using the word strong, uh, because I think it can mean a lot of different things. uh, Okay. There are a lot of different ways of, of uh, lots of different sort of metrics of strength, if you like. But you're absolutely right. That relationship, that bilateral relationship, is really important for Germany. I mean, it's it's also very important for Russia. Let's not skate over that. This is a significant mm-hmm. relationship for, for Russia. So I think they would also be concerned at the potential for lose, or at least that they are thinking about the potential consequences of losing that relationship. But that puts that stress on NATO because you have a bilateral relationship with one of its members. Sure. Now, I, I, I think for me as well, one of the significant challenges that, that we're seeing at the moment is that um, perhaps in, in years past, in, probably in decades past more, more likely, um, the United States in particular has been able to sort of rally around those European countries and say, okay, we've got your back, again, to be mm-hmm. colloquial about it. Don't, don't worry. Um, we've got your back. We're always on your side. Right. Now, the challenge now is that I think that there is some questioning uh, of the, whether the United States can be expected to hold without question that support, whoever is uh, in, in charge of the country, um, and that that is just going to be unconditional. I, I think that that's no longer the case. And of course, that makes the decision for, for Germany that bit more difficult. And in the past, Indeed. they could just have said, okay, we're going with the U.S. But now they need to think more carefully. Right. And, and, and of course, this is all, I mean, Putin is, is no amateur at this, Thomas. He's been at this for a long time and has a long horizon game plan always on the yeah. table. And this, this, yeah. is a, this is a crisis he created in order to put pressure on NATO to give him a yeah. deal. NATO never had any intention of giving him in the first place. So now let's oh, fabricate absolutely. a crisis and then that'll, that'll yeah. crystallize the need for a deal. So far, the yeah. crisis fabrication part is working beautifully, isn't it? Oh, without a shadow of a doubt. No, I think I think you're absolutely right. And the the, the thing that um, is perhaps even more clever, if you like, about this is that there are some very real um, and understandable um, social connections between Ukraine and Russia. This isn't uh, simply a case of a, a, a totally out of the blue manufacturing of a conflict. I mean, we saw right. the Russian annexation of Crimea in 2014. 
um, mm-hmm. that this is a region that, that Russia is interested in. And of course, we've, we've known this for a long time, even before that. This is the, the realm of the historians. This is something which is um, extremely interesting, that idea of the, the greater Russia. So this isn't just um, any opportunity for, for, for Vladimir Putin. This is him recognizing a real opportunity here with genuine rationale um, that could be supportable uh, within Russia. Um, and also it's a case of him um, then taking uh, the opportunity to address a country which, as we've just been talking about, really puts NATO under pressure. I mean, if, yeah. if Putin went after a Poland or an Estonia or a Latvia, it's very clear. You know, um, NATO will come to their support. That's Article 5. That's set in stone. There's no nothing that can be done without just abandoning sure. the entirety of the, the alliance. Ukraine exists in that terrible little grey zone around the edge where NATO doesn't want to let something happen there for strategic reasons, but also for how it looks. But uh, they aren't part of NATO. That, that decision-making process isn't quite as clear. Um, uh, that said, it's very interesting. I'm sure that you are, uh, have a more exciting life than I do. But if you have been, um, as I have, watching flight tracking data over Ukraine for the past few days, you see NATO aircraft, um, both with NATO aircraft on board um, and unmanned uh, aircraft, over Ukraine. Right. So whilst Biden is saying we're not putting any American troops on the ground in Ukraine, sure, that, that I'm, I have no doubt that that's true. i calling that and that. But the reality is that right now there are troops in the air over. Um, so that then raises this this terrible possibility, really, that a miscalculation or an action um, in Ukraine could automatically draw NATO countries uh, into it as well, which is uh, not a, not a pleasant prospect for a Saturday morning. It certainly isn't. Terribly dodgy stuff going on. Thomas Hughes, we are grateful for your uh, ability to at least give us a, 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 an opportunity to step back and take a look at some of the pieces on the board and figure out exactly what the game is all about. And it is awfully, awfully menacing and threatening. Uh, we hope that there is a positive resolution. Thanks so much for doing this with us this morning, Thomas. I'd like the opportunity to do it with you again. Have another chat as I'd this situation is not going to go away. Indeed. Thank you very much indeed. It's lovely to speak to you. It's family day weekend. It's nice to have you along with us, Sterling Fox and the crew here at CKNW Weekend Mornings. And, well, of course, we had our 25th Olympic medal achieved overnight while most of us were sound asleep. And it's uh, Rob Williams will be joining us in our next hour to take a good look at uh, Olympic activities and achievements by the Canadians and other athletes. In the meantime, this morning, we came across a story in the Vancouver Sun a day or two ago about how British Columbians are engaging with the Olympics. A lot of us want to cheer on Team Canada, but on the other hand, there are a lot of us who just aren't happy showing any kind of support to any degree about anything to do with China. So how do you reconcile that? Well, you survey people and ask them why. The people at Leger have been doing just that. Jason Alsop is a vice president with Leger here in the Vancouver office, and they've conducted a couple of surveys specifically dealing with us and our affinity for the Olympics. Jason, good morning. Hey, good morning. How are you doing? I'm great, thanks. Good to have you back with us. It's been a while. So the, uh, did you notice you did a survey in January and then another one in February? What were the difference between the two? Yeah, it's a great question. So what we love to do is, you know, to your earlier point, we want to understand the perceptions and the sentiments of British Columbians and understand what they thought they would do prior to the Olympics. 
did it actually pan out that way? You know, we're obviously right, okay. talking, we talk a lot about does past behavior predict future behavior. And so when we asked British Columbians back in January, we basically said, look, are you going to be watching these games? And about, you know, give or take 60% of the population did. But sure. they usually watch it. But then when we asked them, are you going to be actually watching these times? They said maybe 40% of them said they would. So then when we re-asked them this past weekend, only 27% of British Columbians sort of fit in that boat. And it plays to the, the what you were just talking about there, Sterling. There's a lot of things. You know, we, want to, we want to cheer on Team Canada or Team Australia, depending upon your nationality. Right, right, right. right. But by the same token, there's a lot of things going on in the background. It is the reported human rights abuses. Does that play a role? And what we're finding here is it really is playing a massive role there, Sterling. People are tuning out because of the, this, the reported human rights abuses out there in China, and it's really playing a role with viewership. Interesting. I, I haven't seen any Canadian numbers, to be perfectly honest with you, Jason, but I did see a story yesterday out of the States where NBC, the major Olympic carrier in America, uh, the ratings are quite, quite a bit lower this year than the last time around. Yeah, absolutely. I, unfortunately, I haven't seen any numbers myself there to back you up. But, it, you know, anecdotally, when you speak to people, people are watching it less. The issues going on in China is, is playing a massive role. It's not that no one wants to support Team Canada here. Sure. Everyone is very much on the bandwagon. But in the back of people's minds, there's always that underlying tension. Do I truly support this? Is it the right thing for me to be doing? Am I giving support for another government who with all these human rights issues that are abounding. So it's one of those things where we absolutely want to cheer on our athletes and see them bring home gold. But at the back of our minds, there's something that there's an underlying tension we have to reconcile. Well, you know, we did this, uh, Jason, we've been doing this, uh, following this Olympic and the, and the war wind up to it for a very long time. And about a year ago, uh, in the, in the, you know, with the, the Tokyo experience just behind us and looking ahead to Beijing and all of that sort of thing, we were asking people at the time, should Canada even be going? And don't forget, we had the two Michaels locked up and hostage diplomacy fully at play during all of that. And uh, I was surprised, frankly, at a year ago, uh, so ago at the number who people who said no canada shouldn't go in the first place did you you have records of doing surveys of that as well don't you a hundred percent yeah absolutely so we actually just asked something very similar to that in this most recent survey we asked people you know about the the diplomatic boycott that uh, canada and other nations undertook and i guess their level of agreement with that right 54 percent of british Columbians actually agree with the decision to undertake a diplomatic boycott Another mm-hmm. 33% of British Columbians think we actually sort of like full boycotted. No athletes, no diplomats, and only give or take 13%. But the thing that's really interesting about those particular numbers there, Sterling, is the numbers in and of itself, yeah. I think most Canadians are on the ballpark that some kind of boycott should have taken place. But if you've been watching the games and you enjoy watching the games, you, right. are, in a different, you are in a different bucket. If you enjoy watching the games, you're basically saying that... I, don't, I agree with the boycott, but maybe not to the same degree, if that makes sense. So my, my level of agreement sort of like drops a little bit if I've been watching the games. If I haven't been watching the games at all, it's like, yes, I'm gung-ho. We should not have taken our athletes there. We should have had a diplomatic boycott. So it's really this divide. And this is what we're talking about before, about this reconciliation. If I'm not, if I am supporting the games, I have to reconcile the fact that the government over there isn't necessarily doing the things that I would like the government to be doing. Right. And so this is, this is the, the challenge that British Columbians are having, and their remote controls are demonstrating that. They're not tuning in. 
I would, I would think probably the uh, women's gold medal hockey game between Canada and the United States a few days ago, Jason, could have been an exception in many Canadian households, uh, even though they had perhaps strong feelings about the Olympics. Uh, hockey tends to trump just about everything in Canada, doesn't it? It absolutely does. It's a great question. We actually asked this question both before the Olympics and after the Olympics. And, you know, it's, it's, it's three sports, right? There's hockey, there's figure skating, there's snowboarding, and then it's daylight. Right, and you can throw curling in there if you like, but they're the four sports that really that Canadians are gravitating towards. And when we asked that question back in January, we asked it again, like, "What's you watch? What you're planning to watch? Are you going to continue to watch?" It's hockey that's number one. Right, uh, you know, 63 percent of British Columbians who have been watching so they've been watching hockey. And then we asked the question again, you know, are you going to continue to watch hockey? Is this something you're going to watch a little bit more of? And still, an additional 60. Um, where is it here? 62%. So to your point, they're still in Canadians love their hockey. You know, it doesn't matter who's out there. It could be grandma and grandpa with a couple of sticks. Everyone's going to be watching it. Uh, the fact the NHL players aren't there, maybe it doesn't quite have the pizzazz that it might have been pre- in recent Olympics. But yeah. Canadians love their hockey. There's absolutely zero doubt about that. No question about it. But in terms of the formalities of the Olympics, Jason, and this is, this is a, I think, a, an interesting point. When, when the Olympics showcases itself, the, it's the opening ceremonies and the closing ceremony, and uh, those are typically very high viewer points with the ceremonies and the big show and all the rest of it. I understand, though, the ratings for the opening ceremonies were rather small. Silly, it's like you could read my mind. Like, the reality is, is that when we ask Canadians and sorry, British Columbians about watching these things, only a third of people who have watched the Olympics actually tuned into the opening ceremony. To your point, it's a massive grant, it's a massive spectacle on, you know, a global stage. And typically, sure. people from all over the world tune in to see like the history and the background and the nationality of the host country. But given the challenges that we've been talking about with the reported human rights abuses, People tuned out. Yes, they'll watch some of the sporting events, be it hockey or snowboarding or figure skating or curling or what have you. But when it came for China to sort of demonstrate their wares on the, on the global stage and tell, them, to tell everybody how great they are, people tuned out. It just did not resonate with British Columbians at all. And when we look forward to what the, the closing ceremony is going to be, even though there's going to be a token appearance by the next Winter Olympic host city, people still are planning to tune out of that as well. So what I think people are saying here is that I'm okay, to, for the people who are watching it, I'm okay to watch the sports. Right. But when it comes to those big events where I'm sort of getting inundated by, you know, by challenges that the, uh, the host country has had, I'm going to tune out of that. Yeah, well, I was one who deliberately, quite deliberately, Jason, took a pass on the opening ceremonies. No thanks, not interested, and I plan not to watch the closing ceremonies as well. I, I personally have noted my, and I'm a sporty guy, I'm a, I'm a skier, so I'm a good, classic Canadian. I love those crazy downhill runs. But, you know, I, I have deliberately limited my involvement with the Olympics this year. I have specifically watched less of the Olympics this year than ever before, and it's conscious. I know I'm doing it. Absolutely. And British Columbians are doing the exact same thing. And that's the big question, right? What's the impact of this moving forward? You know, am I going to watch less Olympics moving forward if I put it into countries where there are human rights issues that we're all talking about? And that's the big question. When we ask British Columbians that exact question, we really see that it's really impacted their enjoyment of the Games. And when we Mm. ask them, are you going to watch future Olympic Games? 
people are saying there's more people than more people saying they're going to watch less than more people saying more, meaning that the Olympics have a big decision to make moving forward. Are they going to put themselves into a situation similar to this where they're going to go to a country that's got reported human rights issues and just forget about it and expect that people are going to watch? If I'm NBC and I've paid billions upon billions of dollars and I'm not getting the return from my sponsors and all those people because people are tuning out, right. I'm, going to have a, I'm going to have a big say in that. And at the end of the day, money talks. And I, I think what the, the IOC is going to have to come to um, discussions about is going back to China, whether he's reported human rights issues, is this something we're willing to take the hit on when the, every, everything, sorry, money makes this world to go around. And if money's not coming in through the doors at NBC because people aren't tuning in, there's big decisions to make for the future. No question about it. Jason, great to have you back on the show and a very timely appearance, by the way, on this final weekend of the Winter Olympic Games in Beijing. Uh, and enjoy the closing ceremonies, because I'm not. <laughs> and thanks so much and for this, taking the pulse of British Columbians for us. We do appreciate it. Good to have you You're back. You're welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, restrictions are coming off right across Canada. More and more workers are being, well, psychologically at least, preparing themselves to head back to the workplace. And in their two-year absence, in many cases, from the workplace, it's going to be a different place to go back to because the company focus in the workplace has changed in the last couple of years. Uh, there's a new report from RBC. Canada's ambitious net zero goals will require more than 3 million Canadian workers to learn new jobs job skills over the next decade. This green transition will upend the Canadian workforce, starting with white-collar workers. Joining us from the uh, RBC, the Senior Director of RBC Economic Thought Leadership and one of the authors of the report, a pleasure to welcome Cynthia Leach to our program. Ms. Leach, Cynthia, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you with us. Uh, talk a little bit more about this. What are the three million people going to have to learn, Cynthia? Yeah, well, a, a broad range of green tasks, and it's going to be not just a few people in a, in a few sectors. It's 3 million people in 8 of 10 major occupational groups across the country. So some examples, an automotive service technician who's going to have to learn to work on electric vehicles sure. or accountants who are going to have to audit ESG or environmental social governance um, aligned uh, financial statements or city planners who are going to have to learn how to make a city more resilient to the impacts of climate change. Mm -hmm. Would you agree with my, my opening uh, assertion, Cynthia, that in the two years that most of us have been absent from our workplaces doing the WFH instead, that the, the focus in many workplaces has changed in that two-year period to a, a greener shade? Absolutely. Um, more businesses are focused on climate change. Governments in Canada and globally are. And the key perspective we want to bring with this report is to meet those green targets. We need financial capital. We need policies. But critically, we need human capital. And so now is the time to be talking about the coming skill shifts so that we don't put a limit on our transition or economic growth because we don't have the human capital to achieve it. 
Right. And and now this is interesting timing too, Cynthia, because we're hearing about the great resignation uh, with this return to the workplace. There are some Canadians who are not comfortable with that, who will seek uh, alternative employment and continue to work from home wherever possible. Uh, the workplace has changed and will continue to change. But in terms of those new skill sets that are going to be required, where do people go to kind of clue in to what their long-term uh, game plan might need some adjusting to. Well, I think you've raised one of the uh, one of the key things of the report as well, which is we have some sense of how skills will shift in the green economy, but actually we're using taxonomies that were developed in the states. We need to better understand the skill shifts in Canada and how you know we found that businesses are really taking the lead on this, which they need to do because these are fast evolving technologies um, and. That that's a good news story, but if we're going to scale this ambition of green and actually reach these three million workers retrained over the next decade, we're also going to need post-secondary institutions and government uh, government policies to kind of push people in those directions. So I think now's the time to be talking about this so that we can actually get there in ten years. And one of the most obvious uh, situations there, Cynthia, clearly is the impact of transitioning to greener practices and best practices and that uh, clearly there are going to be a, quite a number of workers who are simply going to be out of a job because it, it will be eliminated in many cases. And that's not going to be just a few people either, is it? No, I mean, our, our report focused on a skill shift as opposed to net employment changes across sectors. But right. absolutely, when we think about the oil and gas sector, it's definitely too early to talk about what exactly the outcomes will be because there's so much uncertainty about global oil demand. But there are scenarios, for example, where employment will be a lot less than that um, in that sector. And so we need to be thinking now. Uh, we need to be testing retraining approaches, understanding transition pathways from one job to another. And so and making these available to workers now who might see their future in another area. And that's going to teach us what we need to know. So if we need to deploy this type of transition um, between sectors and reskilling on a, on a bigger scale in the future. I wonder, Cynthia, in, in your in your report and in your homework for the report, did you find uh, a degree still of reluctance in the in in various uh, sectors of the economy for businesses still kind of resisting the need to go with the flow on climate change and the need to readjust their best practices? I'm not sure I'd phrase it as a resistance, or at least not that we found, but more so, um, you know. For example, small businesses have, you know, put on a lot of debt through the pandemic and they're just trying sure. to manage to uh, with current labor shortages. So it's hard to be thinking about the future. And so, for example, we find that a lot of businesses at the forefront, the energy innovators, um, are really hands on with the training. They're collaborating in some cases with post-secondary institutions. So we need to take that, though, and realize that not all businesses can be doing that or not right now. And so we need to think about strategies, incentives, policies, other collaborators who can help get us there. Now, is that a combination of government policy and corporate directives in terms of those workers and the transitioning that is going to see them either out of a job or perhaps uh, pointed in, in, in a direction that keeps them within the company and productive doing something else? Absolutely. I mean, this this green skill shift that we're on the cusp of is coming at a time of extraordinary tight labor, tight labor markets. And right. some of that has to do with where we are with the pandemic right now. But ultimately, it all comes back to population aging. And so this problem is not going away. And even when immigration gets back on target, 
at, even at today's level, it's half of what would be needed to keep the age structure of the population constant. So this is going to be a challenge. So businesses should be thinking about the future and equipping their workers because it's often cheaper to retrain to train a worker in-house than to acquire and train up a new worker. And no so question. in terms of who, who, who the, it's all parts of the economy. Businesses are going to lead. They need to lead. Um, but government policy absolutely uh, can help us understand, again, these green, shil- green skills shift, align immigration policy to support the green transition. Think about things like labor certification and mobility because mm-hmm. the infrastructure or technology of the green economy might be geographically different than the current economy. And so workers need to have the skill certification, for example, to move across provincial borders in such tight labor markets we can't afford for labor mobility to be an issue. And critically, I think, to post-secondary institutions, we do see, as I said, on the forefront, collaborations between business and higher education. But, um, you know, where we are now is we need to scale these green efforts. And so we need to find ways or areas of standardization in technology or in curriculums and involve our secondary, post-secondary institutions who are often doing the research on, you know, basic research on these technologies to equip the next generation of students with exposure to green skills and green concepts. And that's going to Absolutely. Make, uh, and I'm, glad, I'm there. glad you included the, the, the education industry in that part, Cynthia, because there definitely is a role for them to play as well. I'm fresh out of time. It's an interesting report, and I would recommend it highly to our, our listeners. Uh, the, uh, it, it, it's uh, basically go to RBC and look for their uh, newest report on white-collar workers and green transition. Cynthia Leach in Toronto this morning. Thanks very much for joining us. A pleasure to have you aboard. Thank you. Take care. Nice to have you along with us on this Family Day weekend Saturday morning. I'm Sterling Fox with Phil Figueroa and Jonathan Chung. Our next guest joining us from Ottawa is a good friend of this program from his many appearances in his previous life as National Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Aaron Woodrick is a lawyer and now Director of Domestic Policy at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Aaron, good morning and welcome back. Hey, a pleasure to be back, Sterling. Good to have you with us, Aaron. In your new capacity over at the Macdonald Laurier Institute, you've taken a position against the Emergencies Act, which is being debated as we speak right now in the House of Commons. What's your beef, Aaron? Well, Sterling, a lot of Canadians uh, may be familiar, if they know any history, with the War Measures Act here. Trudeau invoked that in 1970. It, yep. uh, it puts Canadian civil liberties at risk. I'm not going to go as far as to say as it suspends them, but it certainly exposes them to being breached more easily. It's a very, very extreme law, this Emergencies Act. It's never been used before. And I think what people have to understand is it's not really about whether you like the protest or not. It's, it's whether or not it meets the threshold of, you know, being an existential threat to the country, you know, putting the sovereignty of Canada at risk. These are very, very sort of drastic um, words. And what I would argue is that we simply have not met that test here. Um, And the government has, has essentially decided to use a cannon to kill a fly. 
Well, you know, and that's funny that you would, because, uh, well, a canon, Tommy Douglas, back in 1970, you referred to the, the War Measures Act, referred to it as yes. a sledgehammer to kill a fly. But it's basically the same analogy. Uh, uh, the prime minister, uh, of course, uh, uses the language of the Emergency Act, uh, basically to declare the protests across the street from where he's working this morning to be a, a threat to Canada's national security. I, I suppose, Aaron, the question that a lot of Canadians have is, is how this thing got handled in the first place. It wasn't exactly a surprise operation. They knew, we knew, the police in Ottawa, everyone in Ottawa knew almost a week in advance of, of anybody showing up that they were coming. And as we saw at Queen's Park in Toronto, when they tried to pull the same stunt a couple of weeks later, the police simply engaged a few blockading procedures and, and it made it impossible to do. So the ball was dropped right on the very first day. And now, because of that, we're at a point where we have the Emergencies Act. Yeah, that's a fair point. And I think I think it's absolutely true. Look, this is very <clears throat> unique for a protester. We've never had a protest anywhere. In fact, it's given birth to the idea of what they call Canadian-style protests now around the world, is the mm-hmm. idea of using large trucks um, to sort of physically dig in. And I think that really, you're right, that the, the big mistake that was made was allowing the trucks to come in in the first place. Now, some people would argue, how could they stop them? Um, but I, I think that really changed the nature of the protest, right? That's what makes this protest different than any other protest is that you can arrest people, you can break down tents. What do you do when you have dozens of large big rigs and other vehicles that are dug in? Sometimes they had their wheels removed. I mean, this is a, this is a logistically a much bigger challenge. But again, all that to say, it, it, that's all it was, was a very large logistical challenge in downtown Ottawa. It was hard right. to see how it rises to the level of you know, posing a threat to the very existence of Canada. But Aaron, at the same time, uh, in terms of threats to the to the country, that blockade of the bridge, Windsor Detroit Ambassador mm. Bridge, uh, cost the economies of both Canada and the United States many hundreds of millions of dollars. It caused production lines in Ontario and in Michigan uh, at the car manufacturing places to 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 reduce production capability. Uh, so there was a, 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 there was a cost involved. However, the situation was also resolved before the Emergencies Act was imposed. Yes, in fact, and that's, I think, an argument against the use of the act. You're, you're absolutely right. I think that the border blockages, both in Coots, Alberta, and particularly in Windsor, Ontario, on the Ambassador Bridge, there was a much stronger argument there to use the Emergency Act because of what you just said. But the fact yeah. was, the governments were able to resolve those efficiently and peacefully without using the act. And so that's right. exactly why I'm saying, um, you know, had they not been able to do that, I think they would have had a stronger case to use the act. But they managed to do those things and then invoke the act to deal with the situation that's really restricted to downtown Ottawa. Right. And as we speak, by the way, our buzz line question for our listeners is open, Aaron. Do we need the Emergencies Act? The buzz line is 604-331-2899. Getting a ton of feedback on this one, and it is not unanimous on either side, but it's it's very interesting. People are, people are deeply involved in this. Here's a quote from the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Quote, the government is giving itself enormous power to do things outside of the ordinary democratic process. The long-term implication of this is the normalization of the use of emergency powers, and that's very concerning. 
Yes, that is, and they're absolutely right on that. And they're challenging this law, I think, on very principled grounds. This, again, this cannot, a lot of people have a tendency, Sterling, to, to boil this down to whether they are sympathetic to the protesters and the cause. That cannot right. be what it is about. This has to be an objective test about the nature of the protest. And I would even argue, Sterling, that, you know, Pierre Trudeau, there was a lot of controversy in 1970, but back then when he invoked the War Measures Act, there had been bombings, there had been kidnappings, there had yes. been the military in Montreal. So there was, there was a lot stronger case even then um, than there is today. And, and that was controversial. So I think when you weigh all of this, it's, it's a real stretch to see how the government has met the obligation that this is a existential threat to the country. Yeah, you're a lawyer, Aaron. Help us with process on this one. It's the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, and there's another group, the Canadian Constitution Association, who are going to take the government, presumably to the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, to argue the necessity uh, and the validity of the Emergencies Act. How quickly could that case be heard? Yeah, there are, there are different types of applications and actions that can be commenced. If it's an emergency, that sometimes it can be heard within a week. Um, it may be the federal court, it may not be the Supreme Court, but a high level court. Um, right. And you know, it's uh, it's uh, this is again an unprecedented situation. So not something that uh, a lot of lawyers prepare for in terms of process. But the point is to simply start the, the wheels moving and, and asking a court essentially to hold the government to its own law. Um, essentially right. to say the court needs to check. It's the only safeguard we have. The government says they've met these thresholds. Have they done that? So I think it's an appropriate thing and it's certainly a very principled thing for those organizations to do. And that would be the basis of the challenge in law. Again, I'm not a lawyer and it's early in the day. So the, the whole <laughs> crux would depend on whether the, 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 uh, the reasons the government is giving for invoking the emergency act whether they actually are substantive enough right correct the emergencies act itself contains language that lays out when it may be invoked and so this application or action would be asking the government to prove how it has met those elements because based on what it has said publicly um, i think there's a lot of people who are questioning and, and suggesting that they have not met that well, that would include the opposition in the form of both the Bloc Quebecois and the Conservatives, who both plan to vote against this and are saying uh, it's it's because it, Trudeau went on and said, we're doing this because we've tried, we've exhausted every other part of the legal process. And a lot of eyes rolled when he said that. Yeah, well, for those of us who live in Ottawa, you know, the the, the complaint was the, the, the police, the joke was the police have tried nothing and they're all out of ideas. And, and that may be well, Sterling, because, as we discussed earlier, because of the trucks that really sort of changed the available options to them. Um, but they really didn't try anything at all. And so I think a lot of people sort of think, well, you need to de- that's actually something else that's in the act. You need to demonstrate how you need these new powers and that the existing powers that police have municipally, provincially um, are insufficient. And, right. not, you know, having not tested any of those out, it's very hard to argue that, well, we've, we've tried them and we're all out of options. Well, how do you know if you have an actually exercised any of them. Aaron Woodrick is in the nation's capital this morning. Mr. Woodrick is the director of domestic policy with the McDonald Laurier Institute. He's a lawyer, and he's here talking to us this morning about what the House of Commons is talking about this morning, the invocation of the Emergencies Act by the Trudeau government. And Aaron, when they uh, announced this and, and laid down the rationale for it a few days ago, they talked about the blockades being an emergency, and those involved in the blockades uh, have been put pushing back and and have plans to use serious violence for a political or ideological
ideological objective. That's a quote from their rationale. Uh, basically, mm. they're saying the blockaders are, represent a terrorist threat. They don't use the word terrorist, but they talk about violent extremism, which is pretty darn close. Yeah, look, it's this pretty charged language all around. And I know people nitpick over, you know, is it a protest? Are they occupiers? Are they terrorists? I, I would just say this. I think we should all be very grateful, objectively, that there has not been large-scale violence. We have not seen any deaths. We have not seen any buildings burned down. We have not seen riots. Um, that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, your governments could certainly, you know, maybe they have intelligence that suggests that was likely. Um, they have yet to produce that. They have yet to infer that. Um, but it hasn't happened. And that's a good thing. And so, you know, again, it, it's... I, I have not seen that. And again, we go back to the comparison case in 1970. A lot of that had already happened when they invoked the War Measures Act. Here, the that's government true. is just claiming that this could happen. And that's a that's a bit of a flimsy pretext on its own, because anyone can claim that violence is imminent. But unless you sort of produce some evidence to support that claim, you can make the claim. And, and it's it's basically un, unprovable. Well, you know what they're doing uh, with the uh, help of, of their team in the media, they're, they're looking at the cache of weapons that was seized by the Mounties at Coots. Now, in that particularly, well, pretty heavily armed uh, a bunch of people that, that they arrested and have charged with multiple uh, weapons offenses and so on, they found uh, evidence connecting that group of people with an individual, one individual who is said to be in Ottawa and representing a kind of a fringe right-wing uh, uh, militant group. And that link is between Coots, the arrest and uh, of the and the uh, apprehension of those individuals and their arsenal is being used as the evidence in Ottawa. Yeah, it's a very tenuous link, and I certainly don't think that would hold up in an evidentiary standard in court to say that you know a group of groups of people that happen to share similar or aligned objectives, you know, thousands of miles apart, unless there's evidence that they are coordinating specifically that there's an organizational structure in place that right. their 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 plans are connected then you can make that case but to say that because something happened thousands of miles away with someone who had a similar objective therefore we need to invoke all these draconian powers to deal with a completely separate protest i think that's a real stretch so again look I, the thing i'd say certainly i try and give the government the benefit of the doubt maybe they have intelligence that proves me wrong here but it's been almost a week now they have not shown any of this they've not made the case even even vague that they have more than words um, to back themselves up here. And I, I think that's a real problem. What about the slippery slope uh, pro, uh, aspect of all of this, Aaron, that's being raised by some who are opposed to the uh, introduction of the Emergencies Act? Because once you do it once uh, and you've, you've established a precedent, it makes it much easier to do again. Yeah, that, that is the main reason that it's troubling that it's already been invoked. So we've unfortunately already, you know, started to slip down that slope. I worry about what will happen next time. Indeed, people need to remember the only reason we got to this uh, situation was because of a slippery slope that we've been sliding down for the last decade where protests have happened. People will know there have been pipelines blocked. We had the rail blockades. We yes. have statues toppled. We have churches burned. The rule of law was disrespected in all of these cases, and the authorities turned a blind eye, and in some cases, politicians 
politicians even said things like, well, you know, we're sympathetic to your concern and we understand your frustration. So I don't know why anyone is surprised that a different cause with different frustrated people have taken the law into their own hands. So, And I'm not justifying any of it, by the way. I'm simply right, saying right. you should not be surprised when you don't enforce the rule of law that's, you know, and if you don't worry about it. And then down the road, people who have a very different goal that you don't support start using start using these precedents as justification it's a real problem so i i worry a lot sterling i i really hope in this country we can get back to just agreeing on a set of rules that will apply it doesn't matter what the cause is or whether you're sympathetic to it we have to apply the rules fairly and consistently to everybody Interesting. You know, we had uh, David Aiken uh, from Global News uh, Parliamentary Bureau on with us about an hour ago, Aaron, and he was talking about the fact that the House is sitting right now as we speak debating the Emergencies Act. They will all day today and tomorrow, and they will vote on Monday. And then, David added, it has to go to the Senate. So while the NDP have decided uh, way up front to support this, uh, and we know the Conservatives and the Bloc will oppose it, so we know it's going to pass, most likely, it may not automatically be rubber-stamped by the Senate. Yeah, that, that is going to be interesting. The Senate is, is often a wild card, as we've seen throughout history, um, and, and they're, they're largely more um, independent now in the sense that they don't have as many partisan affiliations in right. the Senate. So it, it will be interesting to see where people stand on this. Uh, I think it's one of those issues where, you know, there's some surprises. I mean, even in the NDP, there's division over this. As you said, they're supporting it. And n- not all new Democrats, sort of certainly former members of Parliament, like out there, Sven Robinson, has been, been very critical of the fact the NDP is is supporting this um, law. So, uh, look, it's, uh, it's a dramatic step. I just hope a lot of Canadians recognize it's a dramatic step and that really you, your support or opposition to it should not fall solely on whether you like or dislike the protest. It, it, this is a lot bigger than just one protest. Well, I suppose, and we don't have a lot of time here, but I suppose the most insidious part of it to a lot of people is the uh, ability now uh, released on the banks to go after individuals' personal financial circumstances Aaron. Yes, very quickly. That is probably the most alarming aspect because it's not time limited. The Emergencies Act will end, but the government will essentially have a list sterling of people who are their political enemies and their bank information. I think that's very troubling. Yeah. Aaron, good of you to take some time on the weekend to join us. You've been a very busy guy these past couple of weeks, but it's uh, much appreciated to have you back on the show, first of all, and uh, to to, uh, have some light or more light shed on this terribly important matter. Thanks again. Thanks a lot, Sterling. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live, 6 to 9, weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.